Hey, what's up, everybody? It's me. It's Jeff. Brad is here behind the boards. I am here. And we're joined by Joe Fielder. Joe Fielder is here. Joe Fielder of, of oh, gosh, of game development fame, I guess. <laughs> like, you've, you've been around, you're... Uh, I guess currently is it's game director yeah. uh, on uh, Underworld Ascendant. Yeah, right? game director and uh, and writer. Yeah. Yeah. Uh and and I guess I was going to say something of like a jack of all trades. Uh, it seems like you're doing Master a little of none. Like <laughs> <laughs> like as you as this is happening it sounds like you you've worked on some other stuff along the way. Uh yeah. but I I we probably know you best as boss. <laughs> <laughs> uh back in the video game spot. <laughs> dot com days wow of the mid 90s <laughs> i think they have a, i think i have that on a jacket i think i, th- I oh, still yeah. have i still have uh my there, there were some good GameSpot jackets back then yeah uh but the the older we'll see you got the game spot jackets okay the video game oh. spot jackets okay had the it was the little circular oval logo with that little arrow oh, on it or and, something and video games.com yeah we were like let's change it willy-nilly back and right forth. yeah well that was so I, i'm trying to think like so GameSpot was started as an independent company. Yep. Vince and, and John and Pete started all that thing up. Correct. And then I remember there was the day that we got acquired by Ziff. Ziff. Yeah. Which Sendai, EGM, had all, had already been acquired by Ziff. About uh, maybe six months before. Yeah. yeah. And so suddenly we were all in the same happy family. And I remember being pulled into a room and said, this is a guy moving out here from Chicago is going to be your new boss. His name is Joe. All right, see ya. <laughs> And I was like, wait, what? And at that no. point, I remember me and Glenn being like, I don't know who this guy is, but what does he know? <laughs> um, yeah, and then we were all crammed into like one back room at that Clement Street office. Yeah. It was uh, you and uh, and me and Glenn and Ryan McDonald yeah. all crammed into a small office with a NFL Blitz machine. Right, yeah. We had put yeah. the Blitz machine in that room. And then I think once it became clear that other people wanted to play it uh, – I guess when Trent Ward's office got turned got turned into the Blitz room at some point uh, when he moved out of that office or he went back to IGN, I guess, at that point. Or yeah. maybe it was when he no. left. And that I, I remember getting really, really used to zoning out while you and Vince uh, screamed obscenities at the <laughs> yeah, top of your no, lungs. Yeah. So it was really it was good good we, way to we got, concentrate. Well, it, was, it was a noisy office. Yeah. Ryan was knocking over empty cans. Glenn was on the phone trying to book shows for the band he and I were still in. <laughs> Just need to have an afternoon aggro uh, session. Yeah. 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 And do, do you guys remember the street address? Of that place, because I've always wanted to walk over and just look at that storefront. Third and Clement. Third and Clement. It was around the corner from the Burger King. Okay. That was on Geary. Yeah, that's still there. Yeah, and it's a tra- it's a it's a dentist's office now. I think. Okay. Or, or it was last time I walked by it. Okay. It was a travel agency. Yeah. So it was the the two long uh, rows of desks facing each other, which was great for like you know playing Quake. But yeah, and then Ryan and I driving in, commuting in from so far away, we were always the last to arrive, and there was this shame moment of like because you, you walk down the middle of these two rows of desks yeah. and like mike van menkem is there and he was our he, he was the managing editor for a while and he was very much like why aren't you guys here you didn't even tell me you were going to be late yep and we we did not treat him with enough respect was, in retrospect there was no back way into that it was you just no. had to walk by everyone yeah. yeah uh and so you had to walk all the way through that that place on the upside you had such ready access to pork buns yeah, that's true. In that area, there was one day that I ate a full box of pork buns and had to crawl under my desk and lay there for the rest of the day. It was, I remember. It was bad. It was bad. I remember. Then you you drank a Pepsi and that was even worse. Oh yeah, that did not help. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um. So I, you had been on the eg on on the nuke dot com side of things. <laughs> like, yeah. Is that yeah. is that how you got it? Oh, that's yeah. right. You started I with was one of the. F- First game journalist online. Uh, I'm totally dating myself because <laughs> my beard didn't do that. But um, yeah, no. Uh, uh, the, Nuke.com started off as like an uh, adaptation of uh, EGM online, mm-hmm. and it had a had a, a few folks on there who were uh, uh, adapting content, and then they wanted to expand it and do new content. And I got hired on, and my first uh, news story was Final Fantasy VII coming to the PlayStation. So. It was a, it's a, a good, really minor it's a good, story. Yeah, a yeah. good start. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, it was it was it was neat, and we did uh, some of the first video streaming. You mm-hmm. remember that? 
Which I do. I, I wish. Do you, do you have any of it? Because I, I every like year and a half, I go like, man, I got to find these videos of Joe. Someone has to have these real video files somewhere. Yeah. Are there, are those like little 16 color like dot RM files or something I, at this point? Something like that. Yeah. I don't know what, what we were using. It was uh, Mike Riley was uh, uh, the, the tech director of the site. And he was doing like some early, early streaming uh, ahead of a lot of the other folks. And uh, so we were doing a newscast, and I had no experience doing that. So I thought it would be a great idea to print out the news and wear sunglasses mm-hmm. so that no one could see my eyes move. And you're one of the few people who remember, like, <laughs> me wearing sunglasses reading the news. Right. Yeah. So. <laughs> uh, yeah, definitely. That was uh, – and it was, that's a great trick. And, you know – I think it fit the attitude of the 90s. Yeah. You know, just like sunglasses, like, yeah, man, video games. Yeah. Like that's, <laughs> yeah. Um, and then, yeah, so we, when we ended up part of the same company, you, you came out to San Francisco, which I, at that point, GameSpot had been around as a PC site for a while. And I guess Video GameSpot had launched at that point. Yeah, I'd done a little freelance uh, in between. And so when I arrived, I had like enough to put a down payment on a, on a place mm-hmm. uh, or, or, or down payment on an apartment uh and uh I moved right in and i was yeah. started off as the features editor actually. right that's yeah, right yeah, yeah. So. uh yeah and and that was i mean i what are your memories of that time i because I, I have all my specific weird ones where it was like here's me and ryan making video like we were told that everything we covered had to have a video and so when it came to covering peripherals it was like well how do we do peripheral videos and wow. it ended up with us running around with PlayStation light guns in the, on Clement Street, pretending to shoot each other. Yeah, uh, and just real, real dumb crap like that. I remember uh, a lot of uh, probably you could you could plausibly say that I ran out of ideas pretty early on because <laughs> I was doing a, like history of video games and then history of uh, Street Fighter and history of Mortal Kombat as feature articles, and then I got you know. I was starting to get a little more into the deep, deep cuts there where it was history of Godzilla games. And to me, that was great. But, yeah. You know, the numbers on those articles were, uh, I think, progressively declining mm. over time. Uh, yeah. And then at that point, uh, you know, I guess at that point, maybe, you know, Glenn was was more or less on his way out. Uh, and and I kind of took over reviews at that point. Yep. Ryan was running codes. Yeah. Uh, a lot of memories of Ryan locked in a room playing Mario 64 the Japanese version, just wow. like taking the oh. worst notes I've ever read. <laughs> I remember like we were really into, uh, there was an import game shop in town. So yeah. we would pick up a lot of games that we never thought would come out to the U.S. like Parappa. Yep. And yeah. never assumed that that would ever come out. And, and, and That was like the heyday of weird Japanese releases that didn't make it over. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But that one, you know, like that and I mean – for every Parappa, there were like 10 Gamera 2000s, which only yeah. I liked, you know. But, uh, but, but, you know, we ended up – and I I ended up with a lot of those games at one point uh, because the library was not very well okay, – I, I was the one keeping track of the library. So uh, <clears throat> I was spending my review budget on these games and then it was yeah. like, well, I just, you know, if I end up with this copy of Groove on Fight, I think that'll be okay. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah, that's – that was a lot of fun. Like yeah. there was a lot of um, – and then years later, like, yeah, we, we kept that up. I remember, like, going after the Dreamcast was out and we had moved uh, at that point. We were in the the other, the Townsend Street mm-hmm. office at that point. I remember, like, Milky and I going all the time yeah, and and buying games. And I wrecked my car in our parking garage when, coming back with Crazy Taxi. <laughs> wow. Appropriate. Like, I just was an idiot and crunched the front fender into a cement pole uh slowly enough that i didn't even feel it i was pulling closer into the spot doing oh, man. damage. i was like oh that's that's the dumbest thing i've done to date it was it ended up at the time it was the dumbest thing i'd ever done i've since gone on to do <laughs> so new, far dumber new things. highs yeah new lows definitely um yeah, and then so yeah, I guess yeah, you went from features editor to running because there was a, a whole cast of characters there. Yeah, yeah, I was an executive editor for a while and on the video game side while Ron Doolin was on the PC side. Yeah, and then I became a site director and you know eventually uh, passed on all of the fun things about that job to other people, unfortunately, <laughs> yeah. and. Uh, uh, so weird how that works. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you know, there was a there was a point where Gamespot had some layoffs, and I'm like, oh, let me throw my hat into the ring there. And I so. remember being called into your office. This was in this building at this point. Yeah, uh, we hadn't been here that long. I think 
Is that maybe like a year or two? Yeah, I think you're right. Think. Yeah. yeah. And I remember you summoning me to your office to be like, so, uh, just want to <laughs> let you know, uh, this is not something you should tell anybody, yeah. but I have been requested to be part of this next round of layoffs. Yeah. Uh, and it's time. And I was yeah. like, oh, shit. <laughs> Uh, and that was the point when I started reporting to Greg, yeah. uh, at that point, uh, because that was, I guess that was around the time that, cause PC and console were run as two separate things yeah, for, so, for a long time. So 2000 is when I came in for that internship in the Townsend building. Yeah. And at that time, yeah, like I spent most of that summer internship never speaking to the PC people. Not, not like I was avoiding them, but like yeah, no, there was such a culture of like separation in the office between the video game side and the PC game side. Like yeah. there was so little crossover. I there. remember Ron Doolin writing a history of GameSpot uh, for it was an anniversary. It was maybe the five year. I, I forget what it was. Um, but I remember a timeline of events of like GameSpot starting up, and then it was like video game spot is staffed up. Use of the word hella has increased around the <laughs> office one hundredfold. Yeah, uh, and. And I think, yeah, that's pretty much that that sums up, I think, our presence in, in that office. But, yeah, I think, uh, yeah, that time was like, you know, Elliot Chin was over there. And, mm-hmm. yeah, they were they were definitely on a separate side of the cubicles. And we were kind of a weird uh, around that corner around that corner. Yeah. yeah. And, I just, and just nobody ever walked over to talk to us from that side or vice versa. Yeah. But we I kept saw all the lights off because we moved into that that building and they had spent like, you know, I don't. ZD had spent like, or CNET at the time, I'm not really sure who owned it, uh, had spent thousands of dollars on these really harsh uh, hanging fluorescent lights. Yeah. And we, of course, hated them. Mm-hmm. So we kept it like, you know, perpetual twilight. And there was a time Udo Kier came by right. and turned on all the lights oh. and uh, everyone screamed like, <laughs> yeah. like a vampire <laughs> at the end of a vampire film. Yeah. 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 No, I, that's, I, I remember Udo Kier coming by. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Man, yeah, that because he was in Command and Conquer at that point. Yeah, Command and Conquer two, Yuri's Red Alert, or Red Alert two. Yeah, which was awesome. And yeah. then Yuri's Revenge. Right. Yeah. 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 Man, that was that was cool. Uh, but yeah, around that time, it was like okay, we had become part of Gamespot. We were Gamespot VG, mm. uh, and I think at that point they like after after your departure was the time when it was like okay, we're going to put one person in charge of all of it mm-hmm. uh, editorially. And I knew right off the bat, it would definitely be Greg and definitely not me. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, I feel like Greg is responsible and accountable in a way that I was definitely not then and am only barely better at now. Yeah. Um, I remember telling him, like, I always knew that this would end up happening. And he seemed surprised at the time. He was like, oh, I never would. And I was like, no, I, yeah, no, uh, you were, you, you are the right choice to run this thing. Greg, Greg ran a tight ship. Yeah. Uh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And Greg and I had like a, a weird uh, path after that where I went to I went to EA as a level designer about a year later. Mm-hmm. And uh, somehow, I, you know, I managed to talk myself or talk my way into, be, you know, getting a foot in the door job as a level designer. Uh, and he came over as a, a producer. And then he went, I went to a rational mm-hmm. and he went to 2K and then, you know, it was just <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, no, like we, sure. Like kind of in each other's orbit, yeah. but not quite. Yeah. Uh, and now you guys are both doing like somewhat smaller scale, like indie. Yeah. Tri- the the kind of, terrible term is triple I. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, yeah. 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 Yes. <laughs> branding, <laughs> branding is hard. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so what did you, you started at EA on like Medal of Honor, right? Was that? Yeah, what you went yeah. down there for? I, I went. I came over as a level designer on Medal of Honor uh, European Assault, uh, which you might say uh, European insult, since half of it was not in Europe. Uh, and uh, uh, then I was on uh, Vanguard, and I ended up. It was a smaller team, uh, so I was uh, doing level design and production and writing. So I really, I got to you know my first first game like that. Yeah. You know, it was kind of like a, a B title while other people were, you know, focusing on like the new on Airborne. Mm-hmm. Uh, so does that mean like, you know, with, with a smaller team, was that what allowed you to be able to? Because I, I can't imagine EA today having one person in that many different disciplines. It just seems like that's maybe not yeah. how they do it anymore. Well, but. I mean, uh, uh, you, you'd be hard pressed to get credit for all those things. Oh, sure. Credits, but, <laughs> um, no, as far as there's always more work to go around, but no, it was, uh, it was great because like I had an opportunity to not only 
write and you know come up with the the combat VO system for that game. Uh, work with the you know work with the engineering, uh, but I got to direct all the actors and do all the pick takes. Oh wow! On my first game, and it was it was a few games and later I was able to ever do that again. Mm-hmm. But uh, they were like, wait, no, wait, slow your roll. Like, what did you do in this? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but yeah, it was great. I, I you know. Uh, I kind of wrecked myself health wise on that game, but mm. it was uh, it was really fun. But not your f- that's not your first game. Yeah, I mean we go back to you know prior uh, prior works uh, in terms of shipping games. I always think of VMX racing <laughs> as the quintessential Joe Fielder experience. Yeah, I did a little bit of voice acting in that, yeah. if you want to call it that. Um, <laughs> what was it? There's like a, a bonus level on the moon. Yeah. And I said really awkwardly to the moon. Uh, I can't even do it now. Mm-hmm. You can see yeah. why. I'm... And that was, I, so that was that was why you were still. Was that studio started by Steve Harris? It was. Uh, it was uh, downstairs from Sendai, mm-hmm. and they did. Uh, actually, so so yeah. was okay. Was he running? a magazine and a game dev studio at the same time? Or was this after he was out? Cause that sounds fishy as hell. I believe that was the case. Uh, okay. you know, <laughs> I, I, you know, yeah, it may have yeah. been a little questionable. Okay. Uh, <laughs> they'd start off doing, uh, actually one of the last SNES games, which was a Shadowhawk game, which is, uh, was like a 2d platformer, 2d, uh, combat, game which mm-hmm. is uh didn't make it out uh but i think it's like snuck out as a, a bootleg game since then yeah there's there's uh, like a huge scene like the preservation scene and you yeah. know that's kind of risen up uh is definitely like finding all these prototypes and making sure they don't get lost to time and, and all this stuff which has been like primal rage 2 right weird yeah. stuff like that yeah, yeah. It's awesome. Rip thrill kill yeah right yeah, yeah. yeah. I, have a, I have that on disc somewhere actually yeah. yeah 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 we got we got definitely got sent copies of thrill kill uh for sure i remember vmx racing i gave that like a 1.6 or something like that yeah and because that, of the voice work because of the voice work yeah. i was like this is this is just terrible stuff mm-hmm. uh, and i remember that was the first time uh john epstein who was running the business side of GameSpot. i was the first time i was pulled aside by someone who was not in the editorial department who said like Hey, are you sure about this? And I was like, "Oh, this is this is maybe the worst game I've played in the last five years." Yeah, and he's like, "Okay," and, yeah. and that was it. It never came up again. But it was yeah. this uneasy thing of like, "There's only one reason someone like that asks about this." Yeah, uh, and and yeah, and that was a nice thing about the early days of GameSpot, and uh, uh, was that editorial and uh, the sort of more publishing side were actually in different buildings, right? So, yeah, like the sales team and Lynn and everybody, they were all off. Uh, yeah. uh, not too far, it was like a walk, but, yeah. but it was, but it was kind of, yeah. Um, so that you were there when Shenmue came out. Oh no. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I wanted to know, we, you know, cause, cause I get asked questions about it and I really was only on the periphery of it to a certain extent where like I, we, like we assigned the game to Frank. Yep. It came back in. I played enough of that game to know that I sure as heck didn't like it. Mm-hmm. Um, what are your memories of that review? You know, I mean, that's actually like one of the things I look back on GameSpot and look at it back is like, man, that was a mistake. Mm. You know, I mean, and that's that's part of the problem of having, I think, like one definitive review. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, which was a which was a. You know, uh, definitely something that that we wanted to have the sort of authoritative review. Yeah, and you know, especially when you're having someone external. I'm not saying anything bad about about Frank. You know, yeah, but, no, you no, know, no. but when you're having someone external review something, you know, you just need to have a lot of communication to make sure you're, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, and I, I think just the the act of changing a score was uh, ill conceived and uh, poorly executed on my part. So. Uh. <laughs> I seem to remember you and I both being told very directly by someone above us that that it was that there was because I that was the first time uh, someone threatened to fire me uh, was when I because because we you and I got into an office with Vince uh, and I stood by the review mm-hmm. uh, because that's just kind of that seemed like the right thing to do and it lined up with my feelings on the game okay and I remember him very directly saying like if you you know because I, I was basically arguing with him at that point yeah and he was basically like if you want to keep this job you should really 
uh, drop this. Really? I mean, I, I have a completely really? different yeah. set of memories, and which is interesting. My, my wife is a memory researcher, so it's kind of like, <laughs> you know, we, you know it's, it's uh, memory is fallible, and yeah. it could be my, my, you know, what I remember actually playing that game later and feeling yeah. like our score was, uh, was too low. And yeah, I remember, I remember you coming to that conclusion separately from this. Okay, cool. Yeah. Cool. Uh, yes. Okay. So I'm like, I want to take the blame for that because, but yeah, I don't, I, I don't remember that conversation. I'm not saying, I'm just saying. I yeah, no. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah, it was a, it was a weird one. Yeah. Would not be the first time <laughs> or when I'm sorry, would not be the last time, uh, with, with that sort of stuff, I guess, yeah. uh, or that, that threat, I guess. Yeah. Uh, that? I'm trying to remember. I mean, I wasn't there at the time, but was that purely around like audience backlash no. or were there con- other considerations? I mean, you know, I wrote a column about the reasons why uh, at the time, and I, I'm sure it seemed like a great idea. And I don't remember the reasons why very clearly. <laughs> so, uh, but uh, I remember being very, you know, feeling really strongly like, you know, hey, this this score uh, you know, it doesn't reflect, uh, uh, you know, some of the quality of this game, even though, it, you know, it clearly had a lot of mundane aspects to it. The, the, uh, forklift race, I will, I will never forget. <laughs> Not in a, like burned a, into your brain. Yeah. 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 It's, uh, yeah, that, that one's definitely a weird one, but I, I feel like that's the thing, you know, we, we definitely wanted to have like, here's the single, this is the only review you need. It speaks for all of yeah. GameSpot. Uh, and like this and is that's the, that. Like this is the score of record, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and and I think that worked until it didn't. Yeah, basically. And I think that I mean it's it's difficult. Like this is I think one of the fundamental questions about a, a game review is: Do you score a game that does uh, does that is innovative but doesn't fully make good on all of its promises? Right. Uh, you give that a low review or do you, you know, do you, you know, is there a certain amount of like intrinsic value in mm-hmm. like that? Hey, you tried something, even if you, you know, this isn't the same old thing as like the 10th right sequel of whatever first person shooter. Yeah. And I think that's, that ends up being, I, I would put that on the way GameSpot was scoring games at the time. I mean, breaking out those component scores, like we had very little influence over the final score. It was just yeah. reviewers tilt. Reviewers tilt. Yeah. Uh, which you know formula yeah i mean you could tilt 10 something but even that only goes so far uh which i think that's in the confines of that system it's one of the only ways you can say hey this game might get these aspects wrong but there's something else here yeah uh and that ended up being like one of the last things i did at GameSpot was get rid of that formula yeah yeah um i think that aspect of it was good about mean, the idea that a game needed to have you know, value and I forget, I'm forgetting all the different what is it? it's components. Graphics, sound, gameplay, value, tilt. I think that's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. It, it's it is it was a system that I like. After we kind of hit that 10 year mark mm-hmm. uh, with with GameSpot, it became it more and more clear. Like, hey, we give a lot of 8.6s yeah. and a lot of 7.8s. 7. 7. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And just like the, the way the math worked out with those formulas and the way a lot of big budget games tended to look and sound, like, you know, you ended up seeing the same scores again and again. And I was like, man, we, you know, I want to put the power back in the reviewer's hands. Yep. And this system just seems to generate the same numbers over and over again. And mm-hmm. it's just not that useful anymore. And And so... I think it was a system that like worked for the first X number of thousands of reviews. Sure. But the, every review you slap on top of it, it just made it feel a little less relevant. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the basis of like uh, forcing the reviewer to think about the components and think about the score in that way was useful. But ultimately, yeah, I mean, it's yeah, right. constraining. Yeah. Uh, and I think games grew as, at a point, yeah. too, where it's just like, okay, we're like games are more than this. Yeah. Uh, more than more than their graphics, more than their sound, more than their value. Um, so I, I think it it just makes sense to it made sense at the time even to just like get away from that stuff. Yeah. Um, and yeah. So sorry. Let's let's jump back to your time at EA. Yeah, I had a question. Yeah. Okay. I don't know if we can get into it or not, but if I correct me if I'm wrong, to my recollection, you disappeared into Project Spielberg for a while. Elemento. 
Uh, I think it was PQRS. Oh, that's right. There were two. Oh, on Boom Blocks. Oh, okay. That one did come out. Yeah. So of course you could talk about it. Which was a weird, weird fit to like, you know, hey, you you were, uh, you know, producer, designer, writer on this game. Hey, we want you to be on this, this Wii, you know, puzzle game. And Mm -hmm. we're like, okay, well, you know, hey, this, I played the demo and it was already really fun. Yeah. And it was, it was definitely one of those like, wow, I, we we just need to not screw this up because the the people who had done the initial demo, uh, Doug Church and I'm blanking on the engineer's name, unfortunately, had already like really laid a, a really solid foundation mm-hmm. for that. And we tried to screw it up, but no, we don't. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so I you know it was a, it was a weird fit on that, but it was really fun to like play a, you know work on a game where uh, like an early arcade game, you know, you could just like you needed to be able to like walk up pick up a controller and know everything you needed to know to just play the game right there. Yeah. You know? uh, but I, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm much more into kind of action RPG and, you know, it, it was a little brightly colored for me, let's say. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, uh, but it seemed like a, you know, maybe like a fun palette cleanser yeah. uh, in a way. Yeah. Uh, it had unique challenges and it turned out really well. It ended up in the Smithsonian, which was fantastic. Yeah. And, uh, uh, it's a really fun game. Whenever anyone mentions, uh, you know, wherever Boomblock comes up, comes up uh, the, you know, I think the the five people who got a chance. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> you know, it didn't it didn't uh, tear it up sales wise, but a lot of people really love that game, and it's it's great. Yeah, I think you know, it's it was very much a like I look at that game and go like, man, that that should be a VR game now. Yeah, you know, uh, so many VR games are about that type of physics and throwing stuff. Yeah. The two things VR games are really great for. Uh, I heard actually after uh, the, uh, one of the one of the main engineers uh, uh, talked to uh, the Angry Birds team, and uh, uh, they confirmed that it was an inspiration. Oh wow! Uh, for Angry hmm. Birds, yeah. Uh, uh, you know, hey, <laughs> <laughs> at least the concept went on to make yeah. someone a whole lot of money. Yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah. So uh, did did you have any exposure to that other project at that time, or was uh, that kind of off in a separate? Yeah, a little, a, a little bit. Uh, you know, I got to, to peek at it every now and again. Uh, Jake Cosdall was on that. Okay. Doug Church was on that. So, you know, I chatted with those guys, uh, you know, and obviously I'm probably perpetually NDA'd from saying anything <laughs> sure. super revealing, but I, I went over, I went over to, uh, after Boom Blocks, I went over to Tiberium for six months uh, as a, as part of a group of people who were going to, you know, try to go on and turn that around. And ultimately we weren't able to. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, uh, but there were there were some some pretty neat elements of that. Uh, it just, uh, the, you know, there were some like I think you're probably uh, like me, a big fan of Freedom Fighters. And yep. it had uh, some elements of yeah. that in, in first person. Uh, so, you know, yeah, I remember Tiberium always sounding really cool. Uh, and at times, like maybe even and maybe this is just in retrospect thinking about it, but it also seemed like. Maybe this is a little too ambitious for the license or, or for too ambitious for what they want out of a command and conquer themed shooter. Cause yeah. it, because it did it have, it had like a strategy layer to it as well. Or was At that the one time? Okay. I think it, I think it, uh, it had a, a revamp, uh, one point along the way, uh, that, uh, uh, you know, I think the original vision changed and okay. it became a little bit closer to uh, kind of a halfway between like a ghost recon and a, a, a halo. Mm. So, um, but there were some nice elements of uh, uh, there's some nice elements of being able to like command a small squad, you know, for a rocketeer, a sniper, and a, and a and another guy, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, uh-huh. and and your uh, a rascable friend who's <laughs> just there. Just the, he's yeah. a wisecrack yeah. artist. Yeah, just, yeah. yeah. I, he had a role. I forget. Yeah, and did that end up being? Was that around the time that you were done at EA? Well, yeah, that was uh, that. That actually, uh, the the wrapping up of that game, uh, I got caught up in some of the layoffs for that, mm-hmm. uh, and it was I think before some other layoffs at, at EA, uh, and then after that, I uh, ended up getting a job uh, across the country in Boston for uh, for uh, Bioshock Infinite, which I didn't know when I went out to interview. <laughs> I thought it was a uh, you know new XCOM because that had been uh, a, you know first person uh, XCOM because that had been rumored. And so I went out, and uh, now we're in. Uh, the, one of the producers, Joel, Joel uh, Falstick, said, "Oh, I guess we should tell him what the game is. It's uh, it's Bioshock Three. And I was like, "Whoa!" <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I, I went out there. I, I'm trying to remember if you were there the day I was in the studio. I think I saw your desk, but maybe you weren't there. Or 
Yeah, I, I think uh, if we got a chance to say hi, I think yeah. it was really, really briefly. You yeah, know? it was. Uh, but what stage of that game did you come in on? How how early were they? Pretty pretty early before the Americana feel got that settled. Uh, there was some early uh, look dev that uh, that Nate Wells and and uh, Stephen Alexander had done. It was sort of like a, uh, you know, it was definitely you know set in the sky, but it uh, it hadn't quite found the that uh, a, a dream a dream of a summer's day uh, feel that mm-hmm. that came to define like the first level of that game. Right. Yeah. yeah. But uh, and then later I ended up on the writing team. You know, yeah. By virtue of being a terrible producer, more than, you know. <laughs> yeah. No, uh, actually, uh, they they had done a, a, a they had done a blind writing test to, and put out put that out to a number of people in the industry. They wanted to, you know, they were looking to expand the writing team, and they they wanted to judge without any, you know, hey, this person or whatever, you know, background. Uh, and they, as the story goes, and this may be totally false, uh, uh, you know, they they said, oh, let let's let's have this person come in and they had uh sarah rosa the uh the producer look up who that matched to and it's like oh it'll be easy it's joe and ken levine pulled me in uh the next day and i thought he was going to fire me uh, <laughs> and uh, he said we'd like you to come over on the the writing team full time and i was like what's what what's the catch what's the you know <laughs> okay this sounds really good uh, you know, it had been like, it was, it was like a month or two later after I'd written the, and I, and, yeah. uh, yeah. So I still have that, uh, the writing test actually, you know, anyway. Was it the writing test something that was like kind of meant to be in universe, like writing for this game yeah. or, okay. Yeah. There was a, there was a little bit, there was a scene between, uh, Booker and Elizabeth that, uh, uh, it was, you know, set like part of the way through the game after the, the, the Vox Populi had started to take over, you know, write a, a, a scene within there. Uh, and I had set within a bookstore and, you know, was kind of uh, uh, using it to, as a way means to kind of t- talk about like what Elizabeth knew about the city from being within the tower mm-hmm. up to that point. You know, she and basically that she'd read every single newspaper, but lacked like context. Of, OK, you know, right. She believed, you know, believed everything because why <laughs> yeah. would you ever question? Of course. Uh, and then it was uh, some some combat dialogue writing, which, of course, I'd done on uh, 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 met the Medal of Honor series, yeah. you know, quite a bit. Uh, and, uh, I believe there was something else, but I, I think that I can't remember what else. What does combat dialogue entail? Because it sounds like, I, and this is me oversimplifying it, but it sure. sounds is it, is it a lot of just like, we need to find eight different ways to say, get him for, or like he's over there yeah. or I'm reloading, you know, like, like that type of stuff or for medal of honor. It definitely was. And, uh, what was really fantastic of, uh, uh, you know, working on that sort of dialogue for, uh, rational was getting a chance to have, uh, uh, Ken Levine open his playbook and, and teach me how to write splicers, Mm. which, you know, and really kind of talk about like, you know, Hey, some of the early inspirations were like, uh, the, the mom from Requiem for a dream Okay, that, you know, this, this was a, you know, the the splicers (laughs) were kind of like, you needed to feel sad about them. Like Mm -hmm. without that, you know, uh, I learned a lot from that conversation. It was really great. It was just like, you know, you can't just, my first pass at some of the writing for that was just like people saying kind of, you know, shitty things, you know, like, uh, and, uh, uh, you know, and, uh, Ken really broke down like, Hey, for horror, you need to have empathy. You need to you mm. know, feel a sort of sense of sadness. And these characters needed to be in this, this moment where they still believed they could, can't, ha- you know, they've lost everything, but they still believe that they, they could, they could, you know, uh, regain it. And you were in the way. Right. Uh, and, so, and, you know, he was, uh, you know, really fantastic about, uh, uh, you know, having the sort of mantra of like, okay, it needs to be really, really clear of what the state is, especially like, hey, you know, I've spotted you, I'm, you know. Right. Uh, but, you know, what's, what's the best way of doing that that isn't completely on the nose? <laughs> uh, like, uh, and I think the best example of that was uh, there was a splicer who uh, uh, would yell when in, in Burial at Sea when uh, he spotted you. Uh, can't unring a bell. Can't unring a bell. <laughs> yeah. You know, and like, anyway. Um, yeah. Like, uh, like very clear, like, okay, this is, you can tell what state he's in. Yeah. And yeah. But with, neat. but with character and, right. uh, you know, and all of the different splicers, they had their backstories, they had their philosophy, they had their, their sort of tragic, tragic past. And it really gave you an opportunity to uh, kind of delve into that and make it kind of scary at times and mm-hmm. kind of sad in others. Yeah. Um, so, 
that really has helped out for, you know, since then I've gone on, I've done, you know, writing for uh, uh, the, the latest uh, Star Wars Battlefront 2. I got yeah. a chance to write a lot of those uh, kind of classic Star Wars characters and, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, tap into their philosophies. In some cases, you know, get a chance to write those characters in sort of scenarios where uh, where they you didn't see them in the films, which, you know, was, was yeah. really fun. Yeah. Uh, Boba Fett, I think, only had like six lines in right. the movies. Like, okay, so. if you had to write a seventh line for Boba Fett, yeah. what would it be? I actually yeah. had to write about 300. So, <laughs> so And uh, luckily, the, was, that was actually uh, uh, read by uh, Tamura Morrison, mm-hmm. uh, who was Jango Fett in the movies and made all of the VO sound 10 times better yeah. than my meager writing. So uh, I got to uh, write for... Uh, him and uh, Daisy Ridley for yeah, oh, wow. That. So yeah. that was that that's, was super cool. That's cool. So um, yeah, but yeah, the, in, when when I was first doing that sort of combat dialogue for Medal of Honor, it was a lot of like I'm reloading. Yeah, you know, uh, uh, you know, there was flank them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Over there, right? Stuff stuff writes itself. Yeah, yeah. Um, not, not a lot of not a lot of room for uh, color dialogue in uh, the heat of battle. Right. So, uh, yeah. So. Gosh, Bioshock Infinite, at the time, upon its release, it seemed like the reception was mostly positive. Like, yeah. I really liked it. Yeah. Uh, and it, it feels like over time that the reception of to, to the game has cooled. Where do you stand on it uh, after your time with it? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, it's one of those things. I did a lot of the, the world building in that game, mm-hmm. so uh, which is a, probably a nice way of saying I wrote a lot of the, the kind of incidental characters as you, as sure. you walk Not through. Not necessarily like the main arc, but like, hey, yeah. we've got the flavor of this world yeah. all around. Yeah, it. yeah. Which, was, which, which was really fun. I, I got to write a lot of the, you know, the sort of like uh, 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 sort of – dialogue about the day-to-day life in Colombia. Yeah. little you'd, you'd get a little little uh bits of character and little hints of things to come were you involved um, in any of the anachronistic stuff like the kind of the pop songs out of time and, and stuff like that the i that was actually the work of uh jim bonnie okay. uh who was uh our the music director for bioshock infinite and uh a really great great person he's actually working with us on uh underworld ascendant and he's uh one of my favorite people to work with in the industry probably the most fun I had working on that game. I, I worked on some jingles with him. Oh, wow. Uh, and uh, and uh, PSAs and a lot of you know cool. fun stuff down yeah. in Rapture. Um, but, uh, but yeah, and as far as just to answer your question, I, I could, you know, talk about that game forever. Uh, I mean, you know, I, I didn't do a lot of the heavy lifting on, the, on mm-hmm. the main plot of that, but, you know, it's a game that, you know, I'm, I'm a huge fan of the ending, uh, which I, you know, uh, as Ken says, you know, you know, mileage varies on, you know, elements like that. Sure. Uh, but I, I, you know, I can think of like five or six games that I liked the ending and I'm a, I'm a big fan of Bioshock Infinite's ending. Uh, you know, there were, uh, you know, there's, there's, there are elements of that game where I know I, I would, I would compare it to like a, a, like a Scorsese film where, you know, Scorsese and like Wolf of Wall Street would, he wouldn't tell you how to feel about, you know, the main character. Uh, and, mm. and there were certain elements of that, you know, of like, the, you know, that sort of like, hey, greed was glamorized. Well, you know, greed actually is kind of glamorous, you know. And I mean, anyway, I guess that my, my, my main, main point is that like there were elements of that game that were really out there for the, for the, the player to judge for themselves. Right. Um, and uh, it wasn't a thing of like, hey, this, this character is bad, this character is good. We, mm-hmm. You know, we want, we want you to think about it. So, sure. Uh, you know, uh, there's certain elements that I feel like, you know, maybe we could have, uh, 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 you know, supported better. Uh, mm. but, uh, but you know, you know, you always feel it about everything. So, yeah, it, it always seems like, I feel like the thing I've learned more, I, I feel like we've gotten closer with game developers in the last decade here now yeah. uh, at Giant Bomb than, than we ever did or that I ever did running reviews at, at GameSpot and, I think the number one thing I learned is just like no game is ever 100% the way the people making it wanted it to be. Yeah. They're just glad that they got it out. And and that it's a miracle <laughs> that anything ever ships. Yeah. Uh that that it ever makes it out the door. Yeah, and I think there's I think there's a lot of uh you know people assume that you have the story of a game like 100% like 5 years before it ships. You know, there's definitely right. like a you might have the bones of the thing and then you see different opportunities and then certain things have to be cut due mm-hmm. to time. Uh you know, and and, and you know, I think that's that's I think how writing in games often goes south, where you know, uh, like something just got cut or the ending just didn't come together. Or, yeah, you and know. so you have to kind of patch it up. Yeah, with what you got. Yeah, that was always the the Bruce Willis apocalypse thing of oh, just wow. like. <laughs> 
hey, we're going to make it so you play as Bruce Willis, but he can't come in for more VO. So yeah, uh, he's a very uh, quiet Bruce, Bruce Willis. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I have to ask real fast before, before sure, we move sure. on, uh, what are some of the other endings that you like uh, of, of the five or six? Geesh. I liked the end of Prey. The, the newest one? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I was a big fan of The End of Prey. Uh, and uh, Half-Life 2, not so much, though I, that's one of my favorite games. Uh, you know, I mean, geesh. And I think of, like, a lot of my favorite games, the endings are usually like, well, you know, shrug. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. endings are hard. Yeah. No. Yeah. Uh, I mean, and especially, I guess it depends on the type of game and, and where you're making it. Because yeah. if you've got to make an ending for a game where you're like, well, we think there's going to be a sequel to this, but I guess we're never quite sure... I guess that's the, I liked the ending of Bioshock Infinite in a couple of different ways, or or at least like kind of the, the notion of when you you finally realize like, oh, infinite. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, right. Yeah. Uh, Because it's simultaneously feels like this way to justify the idea of another team making Bioshock Mm 2 and allowing for those types of possibilities while also kind of blowing the whole thing up along yeah. the way uh, in a way that makes it really hard, a hard act to follow. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, uh, I guess maybe, maybe that's bringing some external stuff to it in terms of just like very strange having Bioshock two come out of this, uh, the studio, the studio here uh, mm-hmm. and, and all that sort of stuff. Um, Though I feel like uh, I feel like Bioshock Two uh, often does not get the the, the respect it deserves. Right. I think it starts off. You know, I've, I've talked to a lot of the the creators of that game, and I feel like that's a game that gets better and better over 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 time. The deeper you get into it, and, yeah, I, I think uh, as we get further away, because it, it's I think you get people that get very emotional about you know they get attached to creators. You know, yeah. they get attached to especially you know someone like Ken who is, who isn't a big name. Uh, yeah. You know, and you know, the, the Hideo Kojimas of the world and stuff like that. We're seeing it with, with Metal Gear Survive in, in a lot of ways too, where, you know, the minute you say like, oh, this is from someone else mm-hmm. and, and then you get an inkling, a little hint of maybe that person is not cool with this other team doing it, which, sure. you know, I, I don't know for sure one way or the other on that. Uh, it becomes very easy, I think, for a narrative to form of just like it, it, it stacks the deck against that team making that game. And I think you're right. Like as time yeah. as you get further and further away from that memory of the game's con of the the external context around the game. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Bioshock 2. There's fine. Some, there's some great yeah. siege scenes in there. They they tie in uh, when you when you get a new plasmid, they have scenes that really like incite you know inspire mm-hmm. you to use it in that way and and you know i think that was uh the the, the sort of plasmid intros were really nice and i think course, that, that ended up being my big yeah. problem with the first bioshock was yeah. you know you get the plasmids and you're like well like i could trap people with bees and that sounds like a really neat power but this wrench is really effective yeah. and i have specced in the direction of this wrench very hard yeah, so no, and that's the 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 shotgun and wrench equation is something that in, in my current game we're definitely trying to find ways of like how do you incentivize people not just to play through with the shotgun and the wrench right. when they can you yeah. know and how do you incentivize people to have more fun you yeah. know and engage yeah, in the yeah. game of systems so. and that always seemed like uh you'd run into a lot of games like that where like, Oh, the monk is always, you know, that you think the unarmed character is going to be the weakest, but the monk is always the strongest (laughs) because you're going to find something that makes his fists super strong or in in the equivalent in, in a lot of the stuff of just like wrench and electricity. Yeah. Um, so with underworld ascendant, so I guess like that's, that kind of put the bow on irrational, uh, at that point, was there, was there talk of, of the team sticking together or was it, did it seem, when did it seem clear that like that was not going to be, a going concern. Uh, I mean, I it was actually late the day when uh, uh, things went down mm. and people were heading upstairs, and I'm like, "Wait, did I? What? What's going on?" Uh, you know, and it, you know, it's it's definitely like a, a it's a difficult topic, and you know, uh, uh, you know, everyone I, I think has different feelings about it, and you know, ultimately, like, uh, I'm, I'm really glad to see the talent of the, those, those people like spread out throughout the industry, people landed really well, mm-hmm. the, you know, that they were really well taken care of, uh, in, in my, my opinion, uh, you know, or my experience, I should say. Uh, and, uh, just to see the talent blooming on, on other studios, uh, is, has been great. Yeah. It, it felt yeah. like for a while there, there was like, we would get a press, one press release a week that was just like 
from the makers of Bioshock <laughs> Infinite comes. Yeah. Uh, I worked on one of those. Yeah, yeah briefly. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And uh, and so Underworld Ascendant now, yeah. uh, and like how, that seems uh, like a fun challenge, but also a challenge like you know uh, Ultima Underworld being this very beloved thing. Yeah, uh, of course. I mean Ultima on top of that. Yeah. Um, making a modern take on on that sort of concept like how how do you approach that it's uh it's it's been it's been amazing it's a, it's been a series of really interesting challenges and and really like you know at other side is is really trying to uh uh, uh kind of pick back up where where looking glass left off which mm-hmm. is i mean geez that's a that's a big challenge <laughs> yeah yeah. Uh, i mean but the original ultima underworld was uh no i think PC gamer, other people have said that that was the the start of the immersive sim mm-hmm. genre. So, I mean, with our with our game, we're trying to uh, uh, take the immersive sim and see where we can uh, take it into a, a new, interesting terrain. Like, I mean, games like Prey and games like Dishonored have done interesting things, mm-hmm. and what we're attempting to do, you know, you know, it, it's definitely not a nostalgia. We're, yeah. we're definitely looking back at like you know looking glass had this legacy of innovation so uh we're taking uh, some cues from the original ultima underworld but we're looking in in different uh, like how can we change things differently you know mm-hmm. so in the case of uh, uh it's like it's not a class-based rpg for one okay. uh yeah. so it's really there there are uh we basically uh, it's hard, always hard to know where to start <laughs> <laughs> but basically uh i mean what's what i think is interesting about the game is that you have this sort of immersive sim environment mm-hmm. uh you have all these options within the sort of logic based uh, uh world where uh phys- things have physical properties wood burns mm-hmm. uh water quenches fire uh, uh uh physics matter so you know uh, things have weight and so they're just in the immersive sim, there's all these elements that just make sense where uh, you wonder if, oh, can I do this? And you can. So right. add to that, and we have all these uh, uh, skills and abilities for the player for combat, stealth, mm-hmm. uh, magic. When magic is not like a, like a plasmid where it's like, here's a solution. It's more like another set of verbs. So okay. yeah. things, magic will alter physical properties and physics and also... Uh, can manipulate uh, some of the. There are creatures within the underworld that are just kind of minding their own business, doing their own own, own uh, uh, thing, and you can uh, use their skills and abilities. You can bait them. You can charm them. Right. Uh, and then there's also useful flora uh, within there too. So basically, what the game does is uh, it gives you all of these uh, series of challenges. Uh, and the solutions are completely up to you. Mm-hmm. And then the game rewards you for creativity. Yeah. So. That's one of the things I think I feel like we're we're doing differently within the immersive sim, where you know, like uh, Tim Stelmark, our lead designer, was the the lead designer on the original Thief, mm-hmm. and when the first strategy guide came out, he opened it up to uh, the the level he worked on, and you know, very there's this very definitive like this is how this you is solve this. And he's like, oh, you can do that. <laughs> so, I, and a lot of Looking Glass games were like that, where they were like, you know, just like, oh, you can do things in multiple different ways. Mm-hmm. And so, in our game, we're really trying to incentivize you and inspire you not to do the shotgun wrench solution, right? Uh, which you can do, but you know, uh, or at but, some point, I guess, isn't it? It's almost like every solution should feel like a, per, a player's own shotgun wrench solution of just like they've found their way that they like to play and yeah. it, they've managed to find a way to make it work. Well, yeah, I mean, basically, like back during the Kickstarter, we had we we said we want you to come up with solutions that we haven't thought of yet. Yeah. And I, I at the time I thought that was kind of hyperbolic, but like when the first time we put a prototype out, a really like gray box prototype, we mm-hmm. put it out into uh, some of our backers' hands, and within an hour, people were sending back videos of uses for spells that we hadn't thought of. Yeah. And it really like that that's been something we've been trying to really make good on and really try to uh push players to like oh hey you know how do, how do we incentivize you to try to play through this level being unseen but like manipulating enemies into traps right. or being unseen and and you know uh you know completely pacifistic or uh really how to push yourself in different ways and uh we every time we've brought like external play testers in to check out the game they've shown us things that we hadn't thought of, yeah. which is 
uh, we had a we had a professor uh, of uh, Emerson come in and test the game, and all of the traps are physics based. And we have this uh, TikTok trap that uh, you know it's got this whirring blade that goes around and around. And she walked over to uh, this plant that has a glue bulb. She picked up the the glue bulb, threw it right along the seam of the trap, and it stuck. And we we're all like, "Oh, <laughs> you can, well, you can do that." And she's like, "Oh, of course you, you didn't. You didn't like yeah, it. so yeah." Um, and so you know that that's some of the elements that we're trying to do immersive sims differently. And well, we're also uh, making. We saw a really great opportunity within RPGs where you know we're a team of like. 14 people. Right. So uh, normally like, you know, that's hundreds and hundreds of people and, you know, RPGs are just these massive like miles and miles and miles. Right. I mean, you talk about games like Prey and Dishonored and some of this yeah. other stuff. It's just like, man, that's, those are big teams. And, 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 and I mean, you talk about all these kind of emergent solutions. Yeah. I imagine that's very hard. Like, because you, you probably want players to be able to find their own way, but mm-hmm. if they find a way that's a little too good and break everything, it's not breaking though. That's the yeah, cool thing. Yeah. Like one of, one of the one of the first demos we did, we had a you know we had this goal of getting to this uh, uh, dimensional gate, and it was over uh, an abyss. And uh, you know, you basically had to come in, you saw saw where you're going, and then you had to work your way around. And you could use stealth, or you could fight your way through, mm-hmm. you know, through a, a group of lizard men, and then work your way around to this thing. And uh, one of uh, one of our, our, our uh, developers' sons used one of the spells to create a bridge of crates and just jumped, you know, went across yeah. and went right there and solved it. And we were like, perfect. So <laughs> yeah. I mean, you you would not get. You know, if that was the solution you had over time, you would get diminishing returns. But right. we want you to, you know, yeah, yeah, figure out your own solution. Yeah, that's yeah, that's so, cool. Yeah. Uh, and and so I, yeah, man, that so I guess that must be really exciting then to every time every time you bring someone in, yeah. just to kind of watch them it's play neat. it. And you know, sometimes they they find things where it's like, oh, we haven't supported that enough. We need to, you know, follow right, up on that. Yeah. Uh, and and like, hey, or like, makes, hey, they're right. That should work. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Which is great for bringing people in because you're you're testing your you're doing your best guess and then seeing like you know how your logic breaks down. You yeah, know? it's like an experiment. It's really fun. Do you um, find that the players with the most or least video game experience? Because I feel like at some point you play enough video games, you understand. Like there's that that bit of my brain that is still just like this is how video games work. Yeah, this pathway wouldn't be here unless there was something down there. This you know you start to think about like well they don't have time just to generate infinite hallways so every hallway is here for a reason, and and you start picking things apart that way. If you got some time at PAX East, we're going to be uh, uh, we we may be showing some stuff behind closed doors cool. of of that. Uh, we have a level, uh, or one of our early levels, and it's kind of an untraining level where it's mm-hmm. like we have to kind of break you of like all the assumptions you had from other games, right? In a, yeah. in a very like non handholdy sort of way. But like you know, a lot of games like even just you know torches are they're just you know they're for decoration. They won't let any, right. light anything on fire, or, or you can't break down a door, mm-hmm. which was one of the elements of the original Ultima Underworld. In our case, like you can. You can break down a door, but it might cause audio, or right. cut, you yeah. know, cut, and uh, people would, you know, enemies would investigate. Or you can burn it down, or you can, you know, pick the lock, shoot an so. arrow through the torch into the door. Yeah, like yeah, that sort of. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's cool. So it's it's been neat. You know, the other the other element of the game that's uh, I think interesting and notably different for the immersive sim is. Uh, you know, we were playing a lot of these larger scale RPGs that were, you know, uh, that you would play them for a while and you'd go into locations and they just kind of feel static where like Mm -hmm. you'd come back to a space and like it would just have like a, you'd be lucky if it had a repop. And in our case, our our game, we have a smaller environment that's just constantly changing. So we Mm -hmm. have a lot of new opportunities, uh, movement options. There are these uh, uh, characters, the outcasts who uh, 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 like to build structures or take them down. And uh, there's useful flora that might be there or not. And then, as the game is progressing, there's a degrading world state happening, like a like an eldritch horror, or like oh, okay. and, so, uh, yeah. and and so creatures who are normally uh, associated with the lower depths, the more difficult creatures start to well up above. Yeah. So just every time you go, you might you might come into a space, you know, two or three or four times, but every time you come, it's noticeably different. That's cool. So yeah. uh, and that that would seem like a real opportunity to to innovate, you know, yeah. and uh, you know by tackling something that. 
that we could do with a smaller team, but mm-hmm. also uh, that we were, we, you know, we wanted to see in RPGs too. Yeah, so. and it's it's in some ways that seems like it'd be a really good way to kind of get players to really because you're going to have to think about multiple solutions to yeah. get through these places if they're always changing on you, which seems like it would be an incredibly useful skill to have in that game. Yep. Yeah. That's, that's cool. Yeah. We're, it's really about pushing you to engage with your own uh, creativity. So uh, we had a question the other day about, will we have multiple difficulty levels? And it's like, well, you're actually uh, you're working against your own creativity. Mm-hmm. So the difficulty is up to you. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's like, it's, yeah, it's like you can you can dodge a lot of these fights. Yep. Uh, that's cool. Is there, are there any... I mean, I guess speaking of dodging fights, but do you think that there's a combat-free run through this oh, game? Definitely. Is that the definitely? Yeah, the goal yeah, is I mean, to support like that, like those types of extremes. Yeah, yeah. If you wanted to play through the game, you know, completely unseen, completely uh, non non violently, that's totally up to you. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's uh, uh, there's there's a, a pretty fun stealth system in place. Like I mentioned, our lead designers uh, was the lead designer of Thief yeah. and. Uh, He's uh, Tim Tim Stelmach, who's a, a, a former Looking Glass dev. Who I, I feel like every time I talk to him, I learn more about game design. <laughs> and uh, between him and, and uh, Paul Nurath, who uh, uh, you know is the co-founder of Looking Glass mm-hmm. and, and the founder of our company, uh, you know it's a it's it's pretty amazing uh, place to to learn. Uh, when people start talking about like the the development process of uh, Thief, uh, I, I just try not to fanboy out a little bit. <laughs> yeah. So. And, uh, you know, like taking obsessive notes just for your own, <laughs> it's, it's neat. There've been yeah. a few, there've been a few, uh, uh, conversations where I'm like, I wish we had a camera for that. Right. You know? Like, uh, you know, had, uh, E3, uh, party with, uh, you know, the double fine team and, uh, uh where Warren Spector was talking about his development philosophy and, uh, it was, man, I wish we had some yeah. cameras here. It's so. kind of the, it's the thing about GDC, I think that makes us still feel like fairly out of place is that there's a lot of that going on. Yeah. And at the end of the day, we're kind of not welcome yeah. in an official capacity. I, I feel like an interloper at GDC to yeah. a large extent. Oh, really? Uh, I mean, yeah. Like there are definitely things, I mean, definitely we, we see a lot of people and, and, yeah. and, yeah. and, but it ends up being like, it's, it's way more PR outreach for like, Hey, we're doing game demos. And it's like, okay, that's not really, What's tough? I mean, I think when you've got like a, you know, you've got like a big publisher, I think there's a, a lot of, uh, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm able to speak a lot more freely than I could in the of past. Of course, of and, course, yeah. you know, working for an indie, indie developer, uh, a lot of the AAA folks are like, don't talk to the press, you know. Uh, but and then think, they end up talking to each other next to the press. Yeah. And that's even worse. Somehow. Yeah. But, you know, I think like, there, I think there are a lot of opportunities at GDC to talk to a lot of, uh, uh indie, indie devs. And you know, yeah, that, that's man. the other thing that's changed. Uh, and it's been like, it's been really refreshing in a lot yeah. of ways, you know, like if, if you think about, I mean, cause you think about what, what covering video games was like when, when you were still covering video games and, and for the, the five or so years after that, like it, it really was, largely unchanged uh and that was like i was talking about before we started recording i was talking about like kind of us hitting our 10-year anniversary and and thinking about where GameSpot was at 10 years Mm -hmm. and it was you know like we had been on top of that form of video uh, that time of form of video game coverage for some time at that point yeah in a way that was like i always remember every e3 being very like someone would be very concerned about like well what do you think IGN is going to do this year <laughs> yeah and the answer was almost always not much or or not much different than they usually did yeah but that wouldn't stop like Ryan McDonald from going like I got this backpack I think we can live stream from the show floor this year <laughs> no one's going to be thinking about that yeah. and it just became this weird competition with ourselves that ended up burning everyone out along yeah. the way yeah yeah no no I remember that was uh, it was uh, those those shows covering those shows uh, you know were. It was a massive effort. I remember sleeping for three days, and we were just uh, trying to outdo each other. And yeah, uh, yeah. but uh, you know, I think ultimately, like the uh, it, it, it was uh, well timed for something new when when Giant Bomb started. Thanks. Yeah, it, it's yeah. well. It's, I didn't have much of a choice in some part <laughs> of it, um, but yeah, I think that was you know like we started it because I mean, we 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 looked at the things we enjoyed doing at Gamespot, and it was not the you know, let's run a bunch of news. Meanwhile, Kotaku has started and is running news on a different scale than GameSpot was. Mm-hmm. 
uh, and reporting on rumors that GameSpot at that time wouldn't even touch mm-hmm. uh, and, and changing the game there. It was like, okay, well, that doesn't seem like our play. Like, I'm not a newsman. I'm yeah. A lot of things. Not that. And so it, be- it really became like, well, I really like doing on the spot. I really like doing a podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, and let's start there. And, and it kind of just blossomed out from that. And it's, yeah, I don't know. It, it's been a lot of fun to do. Yeah. You know, uh, I, it's, but now we're 10 years in and it's like, okay, well it's, there's that itch of just like, what if we, what if we did start changing stuff? Yeah. And I think it's an interesting balance between like, there's the expectations of the audience versus like, you know, we need to push forward Yeah, and I can't double the team size to pursue both. Yeah. So, well, it feels like you've got to, you've got to set up where you can kind of tackle interesting challenges and, and try new things. Whereas I think maybe the, the format that we had in the past was, was maybe a little, little limiting. And at a certain point you felt like you'd done everything. So, yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, yeah. that's, you know, there, yeah, there was a time when I was the PlayStation two editor because we went in that direction for six months and, and all that sort of stuff. And yeah. Uh, yeah. I've definitely over those 10 years, I learned just as much about the stuff I do not want to do uh as i did about the stuff i do want to do yeah uh and it's been i yeah it's just been awesome watching you get out there and do all this different stuff and and like being able to like direct a game uh, yeah. especially something that is like cool like a, a, a spiritual like this follow-up uh that is kind of its own thing like yeah it's just it's exciting yeah. man it's uh, thank you thank you I, I have to admit like i uh, as a as a former game journalist uh we had an interview uh i had an interview in the latest issue of edge which was yeah. oh cool uh, uh I, I my my wife just sent over uh the a copy just arrived and the you know she sent over pictures and i'm like oh i'm really kind of nerding out about this <laughs> this is pretty great uh but yeah no it's an amazing uh it's an amazing project it's really really fun to work on and mm-hmm. uh but yeah it's it's great to see all 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 the people who we worked with back then doing really well like uh great cassava of course super giants yeah. uh, uh you know, geez, uh, there's so many people doing so many great yeah. stuff. Ron Doolin uh, was uh, an editor on uh, True Detective. Right. Uh, wow, really? Yeah. Jeez. Yeah. Uh, I have not I have not heard from Ron in years. Ron and I ran a Mr. Show fan site for a brief period of time. So good. That uh, was the, I found that like the Wayback Machine still has archives of Mr. Site. And it's like this, here's this weird thing I wrote as a character. I still quote that, that site. 20 you, years ago. Do you like to laugh? <laughs> right, I love yes. to laugh. Yeah. yeah. Oh, God. What a dumb thing. Uh, yeah, I feel like that was, you know, the – it ended up being like the the people that were, like, I think most responsible for me being able to do this long term ended up being you, Ron, and Trent. Uh, and, and Glenn. I mean, Glenn kind of mm-hmm. got me through the door, obviously. Sure. Uh, but But that was – there was a certain there was a different type of learning in in each camp where Ron was very much the like review guy mm-hmm. and he was just like do not talk to these people they are the game industry we are not and there is a hard line here and then Trent being the preview guy was very much like let's go out for drinks with all these PR people <laughs> and uh, and learn everything there is to know about this game and then yep. we'll report on it uh you know a little later uh, and then, you know, you having come from, you know, the, the Sendai, uh, side of things, you know, just like being like this, this guy is like affiliated with EGM and all this other stuff and, and coming in and I feel like getting me in a lane where I was calm enough to do the job. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and cause I soothing dulcet tones. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, and cause I, yeah, there was. There was the longest time, and I still, I, I think everyone deals with this from time to time, that kind of imposter syndrome type stuff, yeah. but it was very much just like, you know, at some point someone's going to come in here and say, we found you out, you need to get your shit and go. <laughs> uh, and it's not quite how it went down. Um, but at some point, like, I just, I, I felt like, you know, working with you, like there was an environment where I was like allowed to kind of come into my own to a point where... I suddenly felt like I knew the answers to people's questions. It was yeah. like there was, there was one day that someone asked me something and I had, I said, do this, 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 and this in that order. And, and it solved their problem. And it yeah. was this, this feeling of just like, Oh man, I've been at this for a while. I guess, I yeah. guess maybe I learned something along the way. Um, yeah. So I, you know, like I don't think this site would exist, uh, without, without you and, and, and Ron and Trent for sure. Like, yeah, wow. it's definitely, wow. well, 
Yeah. yeah, I think it's awesome everything you all have done, and and uh, I mean you've created this this amazing thing that continues to grow, and and uh, I'm just so happy to see all all of your uh, all your success. Awesome, fantastic. Well, well thanks. I I wish you the best with Underworld Ascendant. Is so? What kind of timetable are you on? Is it is it the is it the when it's done track, or are you? coming out later this year we okay, said cool. 2018 oh, cool. right. okay so uh you've sold me on it like i haven't seen it in person but that's cool, that description cool. i really want to see more of that we just got on pc gamers like uh, uh one of the most anticipated games of 2018 and it's it's people are starting to to you know see it come to fruition and uh you know we're living down some of the awkward high school photos of our kickstarter now and uh <laughs> it's it's pretty it's pretty exciting i'm happy to uh, I, I might show you some after this. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Yeah, I would love to check it out. Cool. All right. Thanks for coming by. Yeah. Thanks for thanks for having me. Yeah.